Hey there, I'm Steve Lehman, and this is another edition of In Lehman's Terms. I'm the sports anchor at News Channel 5 in Nashville, the play-by-play -play voice of Belmont Bruins basketball. After visiting with Hall of Fame head coach Rick Bird, we decided to stay right in the heart of college basketball and chat with one of the country's top hoops reporters. That's Matt Norlander of CBS Sports. During this chat, we discuss the upcoming college basketball season. We get his take on Belmont's move into the Missouri Valley Conference, the future of college athletics, particularly college basketball, and what may happen to the NCAA tournament. We'll also get into his love of music as well. Make sure to like and subscribe for future notifications about this podcast. We've got an exciting list of guests lined up for the rest of the winter, and we hope to provide you, the sports fan, with compelling conversation and look inside college basketball and the newsmakers around Belmont Athletics as well. Thanks again for tuning in, and now our conversation with Matt Norland of CBS Sports. Matt, thanks for coming on the podcast. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's a pleasure to to be on and be one of your first guests here. So thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. Sandwich right between Rick Bird and, and Jim Nance. So no pressure <laughs> at all for you, Matt. <laughs> Just as I want it. No, my uh my my pleasure and thanks for having me, Steve. Uh let's uh let's have a good time here. What do you want to hit on? Uh, well, I think we can hit on a lot of things, but let's just start where we are. It's, it's that time of year. We're about to tip things off once again for college basketball. I know it's a passion for you, much like me. How excited are you to get this 2022-2023 season going? Oh, plenty excited. You, you've caught me at a good time in that uh, college hoops has the longest offseason of any major American team sport. Uh, and so by the time we get to, you know, Halloween, basically, when we're anywhere from seven to 10 days out from the season, starting, depending on how the calendar breaks. I'm, I'm usually pretty, pretty starving for it. And uh, that's the case right here. And right now uh, we're less than a week before the games go as we record this, this episode. And unfortunately the first four nights of the season, while there are a few games for like true hardcore, there actually isn't a marquee matchup until the first Friday of the season. That's when you'll have Gonzaga play Michigan state on an aircraft carrier uh, which will certainly be intriguing. And then November is actually going to be populated with a lot of really good non-conference matchups. I actually think November is going to be pretty loaded in weeks two, three, and four. But it's that first week that unfortunately is a, is a little bit of a whimper. And part of that's just the way the schedule wound up breaking this year with the calendar. Election night is the first Tuesday of the season. And so they didn't want to put a lot of games on election night, understandably so. And with that, coaches just decided we're going to play our first our first game or our first couple of games against, you know, low major, mid-major competition, which they have the right to do, but it's not good for the sport. Uh, you really want to have an opening night where you've got a reason to have people tune in to watch a game or two games or three games. College basketball, unfortunately, is not providing that to its audience until the fifth night of the season. Yeah, we're, we're going to see a lot better games as the first month moves on and obviously the season moves on. Let's back up a little bit, though. For A lot of people follow you on social media. They listen to the Ion College Basketball podcast with you and Gary Parrish. So they know your work, but maybe don't know a whole lot about you. How did you get started in this? How did you move into media? How did you move into covering college basketball full time? Well, sure. Um, I, I've i been at CBS Sports. Uh, we're coming up on my 12-year anniversary of being hired. I got hired in uh, the last, I think I technically got the job off in the last week of November in 2010. Uh, prior to that, I was... Uh, I did string work, which means I was a freelancer at my 
local daily newspaper uh, when I lived in Danbury, Connecticut, the News Times. I did that. Um, I did that for a couple of years, but I also waited tables on the side. And then uh, really my 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 diving into college basketball was in 2007 um, when my sports writing career was just, you know, it was it was moving along. It was fine. It wasn't just you know, it wasn't really accelerating the way that maybe I, I thought it might, which is fine. It's, it's you know, and it was also a different generation ago uh, with newspapers and all that good stuff. Um, I decided I wanted to start a college basketball blog. And at the time, you know, we're talking 05 to 2010 was like peak sports blog era in terms of them being everywhere. You know, Twitter wasn't a thing. It, Twitter, I think technically went online in 06, but like Twitter didn't become like a mainstream source of information until about 2010-ish. I think Twitter actually had something to say in the sports blog culture. And many factors went into it, but that was a, a, a significant one in, in kind of, the decrease in its, in its popularity. So I started a, a website called College Hoops Journal. Started it November 11th, 2007, in fact. And I did that. And then I coincidentally got another, uh, I got a full-time job covering high school sports, sports editor of a, of a newspaper in Connecticut. That actually became two newspapers that did that were weeklies. And so I did a lot of preps work and, and stuff like that, which was, you know, uh, formative to my career development. And, you know, it just did college basketball writing on the side, uh, feverishly, passionately for very little money. I made, you know, I probably got like, you know, $85 a month in Google ads, you know, checks getting sent to my house and all that stuff, but I wasn't doing it for the money. I was doing it because I wanted to write about college basketball. And I knew that it was, you know, literally a way to keep my resume updated as, uh, as it went along. And so that led me to eventually, uh, in 2010, uh, there was an opening at Yahoo sports for their blog, the dagger, uh, RIP the dagger. Um, and I became a part-time writer there. Um, that allowed me to get credentialed because being credentialed as an independent media member in 2010 and 2009, 2008, uh, I could, I actually, I still have my credential stuff like from when Quinnipiac or Fairfield, you would credential me, but I wasn't able to like go and cover the November NIT at the garden for college hoops journal. I was able to do it at Yahoo sports, that's where I met Jeff Goodman. I literally met Goodman the day Tiger Woods drove into his drove into a fire hydrant, had his whole accident uh, the day after Thanksgiving when that whole story went massive. Because um, uh, I remember that's what we wound up talking about more than college basketball. We're sitting there on press row watching these hoops games and like, you know, this whole huge Tiger Woods story blows up. Um, and so I, anyway, eventually I uh, I did some work with Jeff Goodman at Fox. Uh, you know, he would just, you know, uh, he would just assign me random stuff and, you know, write me a $20 check. <laughs> so I was more than happy to do it. Uh, and a terrible negotiator. So at one point I was sports editor of two weekly newspapers, ran my own college basketball website, writing for Yahoo sports and writing for Fox sports. And then got to CBS in 2010 when they basically started a, a, a blog enterprise for every major American sport. And I was, uh, hired to run that and did. And then, you know, my role has expanded and evolved over the past dozen years. This will be my 13th season covering college hoops for CBS sports. And, and that's, uh, that's all she wrote. So now, you know, do a variety of different things, but uh, I don't know if that's exactly, you know, the come up in a nutshell, but that is, that is how it came about, you know, kind of the transition period between a lot of like newspaper heavy media, traditional media focused stuff. And then early 2010s is when it started to shift more way more into digital and blogs and podcasting. And, and here we are now. Well, I love the story. I love the fact too, that 
you talk about how you do it for the love, because for, I always tell this to our interns and things like that. You're not going to get rich, certainly off the top of this. <laughs> and you've got to understand that you're going to work nights and weekends and holidays and, and be around it all the time. And you've got to love it. So I love the fact you talk about that. There's two things that you said on that. I, I want to quickly hit on there. One, what was the restaurant you worked in at the time? You What, what type of food were you serving? I worked in, couple different restaurants. My last waiting job was at an Applebee's. And um, part of the reason why I took the Applebee's gig, one, it was relatively close to where I lived. I lived out of college. I lived within a house with five other buddies. Great times, right? Um, so two of them worked there. The manager knew I was like an aspiring sports writer. I was like, listen, I'm going to do the job, but you got to like, let me uh, take certain nights off because of college basketball or I'm a big NFL guy. So I need to have something of a flexible schedule. And then like, if I'm like checking out a game for like 14 seconds, I just can't have you, you know, don't tell me you're going to be on, uh, excuse the language on my ass. And, and he wasn't, and he was great for it. Um, but prior to that, I worked uh, at a couple, like in college, I worked at a uh, at an Asian fusion spot. And that was right near, uh, campus, uh, where I, where I went to school at Western Connecticut state university. And, um, I also then worked at like, a a family, uh, restaurant kind of deal, but yeah, that was, I, I, I was an Applebee's server until, uh, for, for a few years out of college, uh, making coin in addition to doing stringing work, playing gigs in a band. It was, you know, it was a fun little, uh, little period there, uh, after college. Well, I think you learn a lot from food service in particular. I worked at a frozen custard store and then a family-owned Irish pub. So you just learn a lot from being around people in those jobs. And I think it's a good experience. The other thing off of your initial story I want to hit on is I started loving all sports, but I've kind of gravitated into a particular love of college basketball. Did you always love college basketball kind of first and foremost? Did you gravitate into it? And if there is a moment, what was the moment where you were like, this is my sport. I love college basketball. Oh, I've, I've loved college basketball since I was probably loved it since the like 94, 95 or so. My first memory, I've said this, I think on an eye on college basketball before. My first memory of college basketball is wanting to stay up and watch the UNLV team that won the title. My parents obviously wouldn't let me at that point. I was like nine years old. Um, and my first memory is wanting to watch that team and then not getting to, and then asking my mom and dad the next morning, like who won the game last night? And it was UNLV. And to me, UNLV was like, I don't know, you're like nine years old, super impressionable. And yeah. UNLV just looked to me at that. I remember at that age, cause I was aware, like I grew up a huge bears fan uh, and still I'm a huge Chicago bears fan, big time, Walter Payton. I was just getting into the pools and Jordan at that time. I was also a big Cubs fan. My parents are from Chicago. Uh, but am I remember being I remember thinking back when I was that young, thinking that like UNLV's basketball team was like better than NBA teams. Obviously, that wasn't true, but it just kind of goes to show you just how good they were, dominant they were, and you know what uh, what I don't know their influence on on many many people across the country at that time. So I have always loved college basketball, but I have told this part of the story before as well. When I decided to basically start a blog, I did think long and hard about what kind of sports blog I wanted to do. And there were many blogs that were, you know, national blogs or mainstream blogs. And I just thought I could do another one of those. That's fine. But, you know, do I really care about, you know, writing about something that might be interesting about baseball in the middle of June? I don't know. I don't know if that's the case. Uh, so I basically was like, all right, I either want to do NFL or college basketball. And I thought, well, so many more people want to write about the NFL than college basketball. The entryway just seems easier in college hoops. I've equated it to 
guitar players and drummers, as I speak to you from my office, and I do both, although one much better than the other, uh, you know, for every one drummer, there's 75 guitar players. And so, you know, for every one person that might want to write college hoops, 75 people would want to cover the NFL. And so, uh, you know, I decided just to, to pick college basketball and have no regrets. And it's been awesome ever since. Well, you do a great job. There's no question about it. I love following it. I know a lot of other people share that passion as well. One of the things you do very well is you cover the landscape of college basketball, not just the games. And you were huge in breaking the most recent line of realignment within conferences. That includes Belmont going to the Missouri Valley and all the corresponding moves with Murray State and UIC, Loyola leaving to go to the A-10. From the Bruins' perspective, what do you make of this move right now here in 2022 into the MVC? I think it's well-timed. I think it's very good for the university. I think it's good for the Valley to maintain its stature nationally. And, you know, obviously the Missouri Valley was able to replace Loyola Chicago by injecting a few programs into its conference that I think will give it a, give it a healthy shot at being a multi-bid league, you know, by bringing in Murray State. UIC could eventually be that kind of program. We'll see. They actually have the resources to be better than they have been moving over from the horizon there. And then as we like look ahead, uh, you know, Drake could be another at-large candidate this season. I actually think Drake, Southern Illinois, Bradley, Belmont, those teams will probably, I think those four teams have a shot at winning the league. And if things break just right, maybe, maybe it could be a two-bid league, but it might take a little bit of time there. Um, but no, I think this is actually a, a very good fit, a very good fit for, uh, for Belmont because of the other schools in the conference and how I think Belmont could continue its reputation as a relevant mid-major. Sometimes I think that does get overlooked, sometimes by administrators, sometimes by coaches. But there have been realignment decisions made annually, first of all, at the D1 level as it pertains to basketball. Uh, they always happen. Uh, and sometimes schools will leave one league for another. And it can be as simple as going from like, we were a, a top two or top three program in our league for eight of the previous 10 years before we moved. And then if you're top two, top three, to suddenly you're, you're third, then you're seventh, then you're fifth, then you're second, but then you're eighth, and then you're sixth, and then you're sixth. Like you just kind of get lost in the mix there. I think Belmont should be able to avoid that. And so long as the Bruins, every, I, I think an a fair objective for this program should be two out of every three seasons finish in the top four in the Missouri Valley. I think Belmont can do that. And if it does, it will maintain its national relevancy and, uh, and in doing so, you know, keep the program uh, at the forefront. Casey Alexander in his third season at Belmont, and he's got a very new team that goes into this Missouri Valley Conference, which is either really well-timed or really poorly timed, depending on how you look at it as you take a step up in class. But in his three seasons, 77 wins, only four programs in the country have had more. It's interesting, Matt, and when I talk to people around Nashville, I feel like to a lot of them, he's a Nashville guy. He went to Belmont. He coached with Coach Bird. He coached at Lipscomb before he came to Belmont. I think there's a lot of people who just look at him as a really good coach who's a Nashville guy. When I talk to people outside of Nashville, especially in the coaching community, I hear so many people say, man, is he a good coach and does he run a good program? So give me kind of that national flavor perspective of Casey Alexander, the coach and the job he's done. Yeah, I'd say he has been able to come in again, you know, 
you you know who he replaced the reputation precedes itself and that is not an easy task obviously it's one that casey uh willingly and wanted to take on you know he was able to find plenty of success there was bumps early but at lipscomb obviously across town then comes over takes the belmont gig and it has been tremendous since since he got there i mean you know every season 26 25 wins they've done a great job and uh it, it's not a program that runs itself and i think that anyone that follows belmont hoops is quite aware of that like bird got it to a level where yes they were regularly uh able to make NCAA tournaments and really you know take that program from outside the division one structure at the end of the 20th century and then bring it to where it did like incredible incredible job um nationally alexander has a very good reputation uh i want to be objective and fair on this podcast i would say he is someone that has garnered interest at coaching at a, at a higher level and wouldn't surprise me if he eventually gets to that level uh, but has not quite broken through just quite yet and maybe you know they didn't get to play in a tournament in 2020 maybe they make the tournament maybe they win a game you, you know you got to get into the ncaa tournament uh, and he technically has not done that now 2020 would have been a different deal. Like we get, we get that, but, um, getting into the NCAA tournament, winning a game or getting into the NCAA tournament and, you know, multiple times, I think really further, you know, reinforces your, your bona fides. And now he's in a better league, the Ohio Valley, actually, you know, 10 years ago, the Ohio Valley was really, really fun. And even in recent years, you know, it, it, it had a well-placed championship game that benefited television uh, for the conference and its exposure. And Belmont was, uh, was obviously such a, pr a proud part of that for the six or seven years it was in the league. Um, but now we see if Alexander can continue the ascent, you know, Belmont went from uh, outside D one uh, into an independent structure, then the a sun, did what it did in the ASUN, went to the OVC, did well in that upgrade. Now it goes to the MVC. Can it continue that path? I, I think chances are better than not that it will. Yeah, Coach Bird said in the last episode that he always wanted to keep taking steps forward, never wanted to take a step back as a program. And he did a remarkable job of that, and that's the challenge for Casey now as they step up in class into the Missouri Valley. And we mentioned Coach Bird. You brought him up a moment ago. You had a behind-the-scenes look at him and his program back during the 2013 NCAA tournament, Matt. What stood out to you about that intimate look at the Bruins program and Coach Bird then? Man, uh, I want to say, by the way, on that topic, that was in Salt Lake City. Yep. That was a lot of fun. That was when Gonzaga almost lost. Not almost lost, but it got like a real scare from a 16-seed Southern team uh, yep. in the first round. I remember sitting there in press row being like, it would be awesome to see history, but I got no interest in writing about the first 16 over one story right now. Let's not do this. <laughs> and uh, and we dodged it. And then Wichita State actually beat Gonzaga. And then Wichita State went to the Final Four. Um, So I want to say, if that wasn't the first, then it was the second at most. The second time I actually went to a coach and asked him for like all access for something. Uh, and it might have been the first time. And Rick was tremendous. I, I, I just have so much gratitude for that in retrospect um and really like i just i i remember the room that they watched the tape in i remember what it felt like outside walking out when they left to get on the bus to go to practice the day before the game and all of that and man that was uh that was a really really fun time and yeah i mean the hope in the mo like you wanted to get a snapshot 
Uh, I think I think the only thing he didn't let me do, I don't it was I wasn't allowed in the locker room before or after the game. And that might have actually been I think he wanted to let me do it. And then they kind of fell back on the NCAA didn't let it happen. Uh, and then I pushed harder a couple of years later with the UNC Asheville team. And they did let me and that was really cool. And then actually that, I'm off on a tangent here, but that was a wild first day in the NCAA tournament or second day. And so I was going to do this whole thing with Asheville. And then there were so many other bigger storylines matters like. It was a good thing, but we have like six bigger things. Like you got a cannon. I was like, okay. So, um, but yeah, that, that Belmont team was so good. I'm bringing it up on Ken Palm right now. It finished 26 and seven top 50 team in Ken Palm out of the ACE or out of the OVC. They were OVC that year. You got to remember like they, they were, they were receiving plenty of, plenty of buzz because like Ian Clark was an NBA prospect. Karan Johnson was so good. I loved JJ Mann's game. And so the hope was like, yeah, they might have a shot here. They wound up not, but it was a, it was a fun experience. And, and Rick was wonderful. I I went to the team dinner, got to meet his, his family. And he, you know, he shared a, a, a couple of great stories with me that, you know, about basically about, you know, where he had grown to being a coach. It's where I think I remember learning for the first time where Rick was basically saying, you know, I used to have real impulse control problems with my anger when I would coach sometimes like, you know, he was such a fiery competitor and some coaches are better than others about how they compartmentalize that competitiveness and how, how much of themselves they show off. But he said like, they're actually reached a point in his career where like it got to be too much. Like Rick bird had this appearance of this, this, this smooth, slick offensive minded coach whose teams were just so much fun and very, uh, you know, poetically coordinated, but there were times where he was, you know, he, he kind of confided that there, like, it was just, he needed to get a grip on himself. Like he was losing his temper too much. And when he started to do that, that's when he actually felt like he really became a much better coach. Like he certainly did. He have times where he might tee off on a ref. Sure. Did he have times where I could fired up on a huddle? Yes. But um, compared to how he used to maybe run his practices and then like behind closed doors when no one really cared about Belmont, no one got to see that kind of stuff. It was uh, it was a very fun and rewarding experience. And um, listen, I know Rick's very happy in retirement, all the best to him. He earned it. Yeah. Um but I almost, and he, in some ways, like he retired in 2019 before the pandemic, like the timing was, it wound up being like great. And then Casey's been in there. Um, but I almost felt, or not almost, I did feel like at the time of his retirement, I felt like Belmont might've had two or three or four more years really like coming down the pike where he could have finally been able to, you know, get into the tournament and, and win a game, you know, get into that second round, you know, he technically did win the, the, the play in his final year. So he did get a game, but they didn't make the the round of 32. I thought he was banging on the, on the door of breaking through with that, but Hey, listen, guys, guys, priorities in order. And I can't blame him for that. And uh, yeah, he was just a, he was a great guy to deal with for sure. Yeah, he timed it well, but college basketball certainly misses Coach Bird, I think. You talk about some of your experiences there around the NCAA tournament, which is of course, not just the gem of college basketball, but I think the greatest tournament in the entire world, the, the one and done format to get through there. There's been a lot of talk here recently, Matt, about the tournament and some scuttlebutt that there could be expansion down the pike or maybe a change in how they do the automatic qualifiers versus the at-large bids. If you have to prognosticate, mm-hmm. what are we looking at a few years from now in the NCAA tournament? Mm. Okay. Um Man, I still, all right. So as we record this podcast, this is obviously something that I'm, I'm tracking behind the scenes and 
I, if I had, <laughs> I, I don't want it to expand. Neither do I, for the record. I, I do not want it. I don't want another team in the tournament. 68 is fine. 64 should be the number, but whatever. 68 yeah. is what it is. Uh, I'm, I'm close to 50-50 on whether it'll actually expand at all, let's say, in the next five years. Um, this whole topic is like another podcast unto itself. So I'll try and be quick on it. I do think there's a decent chance that it'll go from 68 to 72. And one reason why I think it might do that is I do think Greg Sankey, commissioner of the SEC and, and some other commissioners, if they can get four more at large bids on the table to appease in most years, it'll be at least three out of four of those bids will go to power conferences. And many years it'll be all four as much as I'd like to believe a team from the Valley or a mid-major that's earned it should get in there. I'm just, unfortunately, I'm skeptical on that, but we'll have to wait and see. I think uh, there won't be any automatic bids that are taken off the table. I think all 32 bids are, are going to stay on the table. Um, but I think in exchange for that, they might try and get four more at larges into the field. Um, but if, when it comes to the television schedule, the schedule of the season in general, I'm, you know, I can't proclaim that nothing significant and major will happen. I'm just skeptical from a logical, from a logistical standpoint, how adding 10 plus teams into the tournament field would be a net positive from a from a from a television production standpoint from and this is a, a, a by the way another small a small thing that i don't think is all that small is like people like to look at the bracket and see how it is if you have an 80 team field it's not going to look good on a piece of paper it won't fit right on a piece of paper a lot of the appeal of the tournament is that it's it's three weekends with two games per weekend in effect. Take the first four out of it there. And that format is the perfect viewing experience. And the more teams you put into the tournament, the, the, the more you have to split the pie up. And that deal is going to 2032 with CBS and Turner. And that deal is not getting renegotiated. So I actually don't think that there stands to be a lot more money made for the schools uh, over the next decade there. So I actually think there's a possibility that the tournament won't expand in the near future for the next five or six years. I'm not saying it's more likely than not. I really feel it's 50, 50, but you know, this is a hot button topic. And as we record this, I mean, I can just say that like the actual topic by the people that would have influence over this changing, getting discussed, like, are we going to expand the men's and women's tournaments? Cause if men's expands, women's expands that topic, getting discussed in length, in depth, it it may have happened in the past few days since uh, from the timing of this recording, but it was merely floated out there, I think, as a trial balloon by Greg Sankey. And there were some informal, like very, very briefly informal conversations about expanding all NCAA tournaments of all sports. Uh, but the actual like, if we're going to do this, let's actually look at the pros and cons. I think that is something that has only recently, if at all, been talked about privately. And uh, and those discussions would actually get more serious about the particulars because there's a thousand particulars you have to consider when doing this. I actually think in November here of 2022 and then in December is when that would happen. All right. I got a few questions I ask everybody that we'll get to in just a moment, but I got one final one on this particular season. You mentioned at the beginning, the college basketball has 
the longest off season. And so it's got a ton of time for conversation. And it feels at least to me that most of this off season was about the NCAA tournaments here in the last few weeks. And if it expands, which to me, it's perfect as it is. Don't mess with it. As you just said there, it's been about NIL. It's been about the transfer portal. It's been about all the bad things of college basketball. As you look at this season, Matt, as we get set to get going, are those topics going to carry the day through much of this season? We're still going to be talking about sort of the bad things influencing the game right now, or what are the good storylines that are going to take over in your mind? Uh, I don't think the NIL and transfer portal are bad stories. Uh, they're part of this. They're part of the narrative of the sport and there'll be like things in the background for sure. But when we get into the season, it's going to be what teams are better than we thought, what teams aren't playing as well as we thought, what, you know, there's a lot of familiar faces, like some of the best storylines are the fact that we have most of UNC's roster back from a title team. Drew Timmy's back, the national player of the year, Oscar Shibway's back. He's going to try and become the first player in four decades to win the national player of the year in consecutive seasons. There's a lot of familiar players who are back. And, you know, there will also be storylines about like, okay, what's Duke like without Mike Krzyzewski? What's Villanova like without Jay Wright, you know? See how Syracuse does. Jim Beheim, uh, he's not the f- voice of the sport, the face of the sport from a coaching perspective, but he is <laughs> he is the elder statesman. I mean, he's going to be 78 here um, in November. And so, uh, you know, I think more attention even gets paid to guys like Bob Huggins, Tom Izzo, you know, elder statesmen who uh, who are Hall of Famers that uh, that have decided to stick around here. So, you know, it'll be the it'll be the same storylines as we usually get, you know, and that's great. The surprises, there's going to be things that we could, we just can't see coming around the bend and they're going to make for some really interesting topics. And so that stuff will, will be more than, you know, NIL, although NIL will certainly be a part of it, which is fine. Uh, transfer portal, not as much. That's more of a story just for the off season. Cause players are going in. Like it'll be a part of it in terms of it actually makes some teams harder to predict how good or not good they'll be. So that'll be a part of it a little bit. And then I would think that throughout the course of the season, what becomes of the NCAA tournament in the years to come will be made clear. And so that will also be something. And if it doesn't change, then it will be, it'll be a headline when that happens. And then, you know, it'll kind of stay static, but um, the, uh, yeah, the nature of that event, obviously, like when we get to there. And then another headline that's coming in November is we're going to have uh Final four sites determined for years 2027 through 2031. And I fully anticipate Las Vegas will be one of those sites. And so you'll have a final four going to Las Vegas. That'll be a, that'll be a, it might be a one or two day headline, but it's never happened before. And um, like, I I actually think privately those decisions, if haven't been made yet, are like, they're pretty much almost done, like pretty soon here. And then the NCAA will announce it in the middle of November. And so that's, uh, that'll be another big one that, uh, that lands before we get to Thanksgiving. We're hoping here in Nashville that maybe 2032 or beyond. We uh, you need that football. No, 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 no. That fo- Nashville needs a football stadium that is uncovered. Okay. That's ridiculous. Well, that's not happening. So it, it's- that's, that's ridiculous. We know that's ridiculous. Nashville, Tennessee with a covered football stadium. And by the way, that one you have there real quick, just I'm an NFL guy. Like yeah. what's the, is that stadium already in like in a state of disrepair? It's like 21 years old. Is it really already uh, in need of a complete teardown? Well, I wasn't privy to the internal discussions on this map, but what they've said is that the flood in 2010 damaged some of the structural aspects of it. And because of that, it will cost a lot of money to keep it up to date down the road. The city's on the hook because they signed a bad lease initially for the city mm-hmm. perspective to get the team there that they 
are on the hook taxpayer-wise for all of the upkeep and upgrades and renovations that you have to do for that stadium. So they hope to actually remove some of the burden from the city perspective with the new stadium. And what they said about the roof, Matt, is they said, looking around the league at other stadiums, they're open less than 30% of the time on NFL game days. And even more than that, 3% of the time for all other events. And they cost a lot of money, not just to put in, you're talking about a quarter of a billion dollars, mm -hmm. but also to upgrade and to renovate because they cost a lot of upkeep. So from a cost perspective in a $2.1 billion project, I think they thought it was in the best interest to leave that off the table. I think they're talking about it being covered, but open air, right? Like the Rams it's covered, but it's open air. If it's open There's air, so you, you won't get a final four. They won't play basketball if there's open air. So that's the, that's well, if they do that, it will be, side garage door type of things and i'm not sure if that's definite um, in the prospect but they'll be able to close it will be a fully enclosed building because they want to be able to do things here in january and february and absolutely final four was part of the discussion of what they want to do okay so, there we go so maybe so hope, yeah, maybe sometime in the 2030s nashville gets a final four it's possible that, that's certainly the goal okay some real quick rapid fire questions i'm gonna try and ask everybody because i think they're just interesting into kind of your mindset and how you got to where you are as well. So I see all the guitars and the drum set in there. We talked about how you got into this position, but if you, if you never wrote an article in your life, never covered college basketball, mm -hmm. are you in a band, Matt? Like, like what no. are you doing right now? I mean, I'd be in a band. Like I still play like the occasional guitar gig around uh, Connecticut, but um, if, what would I, so if I wasn't a sports writer, what would I be doing? Yeah. That's a great question. Because uh, I hadn't really strongly considered any alternative career path since the age of, say, twenty. Um, no, I'd I would have I I I would still probably try and play uh, play tunes. My bass player uh, moved to Japan, so we we played just uh, we just did like you know cover stuff, a few originals around here in my twenties and stuff like that. But uh, then he uh, he got married and then got stationed in Japan. So uh, all good things must come to an end. Um, what would I be doing? Ooh, man, I, that's the thing, man. Like, yeah, I, I guess probably in some regard, like music writing, I might've pursued that. Like, I, I feel like if I wasn't working in sports, I would be involved in the music realm in some way or form. Um, I, I, I probably would have gone headfirst into that if I wasn't so into college basketball. All right. The second question I asked Coach Bird because it's something that's always fascinating, man. You may have seen this too. I feel like with college basketball coaches, so often I wonder if they're having any fun at all because it seems like even the biggest wins just are treated as, oh, what a relief <laughs> to have done that. And then every loss is like the worst moments ever. They believe they're getting fired the next day sort of thing. And so I kind of wonder what actually drives these guys. Is it like the feel of failure and that, that agony of you don't want to lose and experience that, or is there actually a joy in accomplishing out there? You're not on the sideline per se, but I think everybody's kind of driven by one or the other of those two things. What drives you to have the success you've had? Uh, I'm just driven by wanting to engage with the subject that I cover. Like I genuinely love college basketball. And so I want that to be reflected in my writing and my podcast voice uh, when I have to do my hits for CBS sports HQ on, on camera um, and to, to, to do it well and to serve 
college basketball fans. I wrote this, I think, in the intro of when I had to rank the top 101 teams this year. Like, I try and provide a lot of content that I personally would be seeking out and would want to read about if I was a college basketball fan and separated from the media. And so a lot of it is that like, I, it is a job. Yes. Uh, occasionally there are things where I might be doing them and I might be like, like, you know, not over the moon about doing them, but for the most part, like I, I do what I do with enthusiasm and with, you know, positivity and optimism because I like doing it. I'm not tired of the sport. There's so much about it that I really, really enjoy and so that's really what does drive me about it is I still find so many things about college basketball and what the sport offers, uh, very redeeming, uh, the stories that need to be, that, that need to be told. I mean, it's still a privilege to be able to meet a young player or get to know a coach and have them open up and trust that I will be able to tell a story fairly objectively uh, but uh, to kind of spread it to more people to serve as a way of, yeah, sure, providing more attention on the sport, but also maybe helping someone that might come across the story for one reason or another. So, um, you know, those are my those are my reasons for doing it. It's just it it, it brings me a lot of joy. And uh, and what can I say? I find I, and I, I like other sports as well. And I like I have to I get to write about the Olympics for CBS and I love, I love the Olympics. I've done some golf. I very much enjoy golf. So it's just, you know, it's, it's an appreciation for what the nature of, of competition can provide us and uh, the way that those things can bring about storylines and just, you know, sports is it's unlike anything else in the world. And I, it, for many reasons, it's a very, very good thing. Well, I can relate. I feel like you never work a day in your life if you love it as much as I think you and I do and you get to do this for a living. So it's pretty fun. Last question. Mm. This is this is the way you unwind. So the way you set it up earlier, maybe it's the night you get the bracket in March on Selection Sunday and you're, you're sitting there at home, you're staring at the bracket or maybe it's in a hotel room or whatever and, and you're kind of taking it all in. How do you unwind as you do that? Like, you know... It, are, are you a wine guy? Do you pour yourself a, a no. glass of a great wine? Do you no. listen to a great music track? Do you have TV on? Like, what's your way to just kick back and, and unwind? First of all, day? when the bracket comes out on Selection Sunday, that's like my least unwindable day of the entire year. Okay. All right. Bad yeah. setup. That is, that is normally daylight savings. We lose an hour. Yeah. So I'm now working on a 23 hour day and I'm already like going to sleep at like 2:45 AM the night before waking up at, you know, eight 30 in the morning or whatever. All right. How about July at a lake somewhere then? Unwinding actually. Okay. So, uh, some of the things I love to do, I am a, here's the, here's the one bummer about my beat. I, I grew up in Vermont. I love to ski. So I don't get to ski. If, if, you know, if it was up to me, I would ski 40 days a season, you know, uh, but I only get to steal away for three, four, five days a winter to go and do that. Um, so that is my favorite activity to do. My favorite actual like activity is to ski. I love to ski. I uh, grew up in Vermont. What do you want from me? So um, so in the winter, I usually try and uh, take one full weekend off, uh, dip away and do that and then take, you know, you know, two or three quick, I live in Connecticut, you know, drive up about three hours, uh, wake up at 5am, get up to the mountain, ski, drive back. I do two or three of those day trips a year as well. In the middle of the summer, uh, I do play some golf. Uh, wife is big on trying to get, get away to a beach and, you know, do stuff like that. But it, like my big, my favorite things to unwind to kind of like just relax. Um, 
Yeah, like my older son, he's he's six going on seven. He actually he like legitimately wanted to get a pair of like youth, uh, a set of youth golf clubs. So I got him those. Awesome. So doing that stuff with the kiddos, um, going skiing. Uh, I'm a pretty big reader. Uh, so, you know, stuff like that. And then I got to say to the listeners here, um, I I'm, I'm big on, uh, on exercise. Like if, if you're someone who wishes you did it more, I don't know. Everyone's different for me. It's actually a very big part of just like near daily mental health. Like if I go like three days without either doing some sort of cardio or, you know, push-ups or a little bit of weights or something. If I do that for like three straight days, which will sometimes happen during the tournament, mm-hmm. uh, my body just feels off. And, you know, uh, so that's, that's a good way to like physically unwind is allow yourself to, to do that and kind of mentally recharge. And obviously it's good for the body. And that kind of like continues to give me energy and to kind of get through the days when you're trying to balance, I got young kiddos here. So the kids in the house and, uh, you know, coming home from school, it's always a, it's always a big adventure. And, and that combined with, you know, a beat, which sometimes, college basketball, you know, sometimes I'll be on the phone until 12, 15 at night talking to maybe a coach out, out West or whatever like that. So the hours are obviously unconventional and they can be long. So having uh, a reliable regimen of, of, of exercise, like it does a body really, really good. So I recommend that to everyone. Matt, I love that answer. There's a little bit of fun in there, but also some good advice as well. Gosh, I feel like we could go on and on and on and talk a lot more about the college season. So maybe we'll get the chance to do that again down the road here, but I really appreciate your time today. Have fun with the tip off of college basketball. And people, of course, can read your CBS Sports Eye on College Basketball podcast. A- anywhere else they should be looking out for you? That'll that's about it, man. I'm <laughs> yeah, I'm uh, I'm low maintenance when it comes to this. But thank you, uh, Steve, so much for having me. I appreciate it. And uh my apologies to Jim Nance. I'm a I'm a I'm a terrible uh leadoff hitter here for him. So uh, I know he will exceed me greatly. You were great. We appreciate the time, Matt. Thank you.